Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Dr. Mary Sarah Bilder. Dr. Bilder is the Founders Professor of Law at Boston College Law School, where she teaches in the areas of property, trusts and estates, and American legal and constitutional history. Today, she discusses her book, Madison's Hand, Revising the Constitutional Convention, which was a finalist for the George Washington Book Prize. And now, Drs. Bilder and Bradburn. Okay, and welcome back. This is Doug Bradburn, founding director at the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington here at beautiful Mount Vernon, and I'm delighted to be joined by Mary Sarah Bilder. Mary, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Now, as you all know, Mary Sarah Builder is an incredible historian of uh, legal history, early American legal history, particularly the most recent Bancroft-winning Madison's Hand, revising the Constitutional Convention. Uh, what some of you may not know, of course, the Bancroft Prize is pretty good, but more importantly than that, she was the finalist for the George Washington Book Prize with this tremendous study and revision, really, of Madison's notes of the convention. Well, it was wonderful to be here in the spring for that festivity. I was enjoyed myself thoroughly. <laughs> it's a beautiful event uh, on the piazza. Do you have any particular memories of that evening? Well, one story I'm going to share tonight when I speak here is um, I grew up playing the piano, and my mother's family had an old clock from 1837, and it had this beautiful house on the lower portion. And whenever I was practicing, mm. I always thought I wanted to grow up and live in that house. And then when I was here, I'd never visited Mount Vernon, and I was here on the piazza uh, standing around, and I suddenly realized that the house I'd wanted to live in was Mount Vernon, <laughs> so I guess I'm not going to live in that. <laughs> that's amazing. Oh, that's an extraordinary thing. I mean, Mount Vernon has been a part of the, uh, the cultural world of Americans for a long, long time, and it, it, it sneaks up on you in strange places. I think uh, somebody, you know, who... Uh, has come come to work here after being an early Americanist and a professor out there in the world. Uh, these references to Mount Vernon that I never recognized—they're everywhere. I mean, like on strange clocks and things. So. Yeah, yeah, no. And Madison. One of the things that I sort of wish I had done now was I'd visited Mount Vernon earlier because Madison, mm -hmm. certainly in this time period that I'm interested in, yeah. comes to visit Washington and Mount Vernon. And I now understand why he kept trying to come and visit mm -hmm. Washington at Mount Vernon. It seems like it would have been a lovely place to mm -hmm. stay and visit. Yeah. yeah, they had quite a collaboration, didn't they, in that yeah. period in 1784 until 87 uh, with Madison coming to Mount Vernon multiple times. Right. Well, I think um, particularly before the convention in the 1780s, um, he and Washington are very much on the same page. Mm -hmm. And I think Washington and Madison see in each other an ally in a quest to have a stronger national government. Yeah. And so having been here, I now think, oh, they maybe they sat out on the back veranda there and thought about how great it would be to have a much stronger country than they faced at that time. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a, 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 an important moment of their collaboration. Madison is in Virginia in the House of Delegates because he can't serve in the Continental Congress anymore. Right. Uh, Washington is supposedly retired, but in fact, he's got this whole scheme going with the Potomac Navigation Company that he and Madison are working on together, uh, trying to get it through both legislatures. How do, do you do you do you know or do you have a strong opinion about you know how Madison and Washington come to come to work so closely together? I mean, did they know each other before, or how does? Well, I assume they must have known each other. Yeah. You know, being both Virginians, mm-hmm. Madison's of course much younger, mm-hmm. and um, and not famous. I mean, we yeah. know he's going to be Madison, but, but he doesn't right. know that at that's, all. That's kind of the question. It's sort of like how do you introduce yourself to Washington as right. like, hey, I can help you out. You right, know? right. No, I, I mean, it's an excellent question and one that I don't really know the answer to. They, they, why weren't there other, some other Virginian Yeah, I assume, you know, Washington had been interested at the Mount Vernon, um, you know, with the trade, with the Mount Vernon Conference, mm-hmm. and yeah. then um, with the Annapolis Convention, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, uh, which yeah. he was interested in, and Madison uh, was interested in. So I assume that Madison... And Madison had made a name for himself at the local level, yeah. uh, certainly. But um, but certainly he was not of the same level yeah. as I, the general. Now that I think it through, it could have been through the relationship with Jefferson that Madison already had, because Jefferson is writing letters to Washington about how he hopes that he will, you know, take on the James and Potomac navigation projects, and Mr. Madison's working on that. And, you know, so I think there might have been. Some connection there. Anyway, though, let's get to you. Let's talk about <laughs> about you. You're from Wisconsin originally. Yeah, I'm from um, I'm from Wisconsin, and my undergraduate degree is from the University of Wisconsin, which um, certainly has had a long history of being involved in um, constitutional history projects. I was actually an English major, though, now, so I can't claim any direct. It's, it's in Madison, Wisconsin. It's in is Madison, that where your Wisconsin. Love with James Madison. No, I actually <laughs> a huge funny thing about it is if you grow up in Madison, you don't think about Madison being. Madison yeah. at all. I, I actually know something about this because I was interested. Madison was named probably m- as much for Dolly Madison as it was for James. Is that right? Yeah, the young lawyer who drew up the plans for Madison, Wisconsin, uh, apparently, quote, knew Dolly quite well. Mm. Quite well is the, mm. is the phrase. And he named Madison, obviously, for Madison. And the mm. city itself is um, uh, built on a radial sort of plan like Washington, D.C., and all the streets are named after signers of the convention. Mm. So this is kind of, this has been kind of useful for me as a, as a person. Like I know, I know, you know, that Patterson only has one T in it, um, but it was only it's years later that I made the connection. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You can live your whole life in Madison and not yeah, realize, not realize why Oh it yeah. Is. James Madison. Yeah. Right. Constitution. Yeah. Well, well, you're right. I mean, the Historic Society of Wisconsin there and John Comiskey's work right. and you know, the documentary additions of the the Constitution, the ratification of the Constitution right. are so crucial. So it has had a long connection with this story that you're pursuing. Uh, I was born in Racine, Wisconsin, so Madison was always sort of a fancy place where smart people <laughs> went. <laughs> and I think the university would have been on my agenda at some point, but I, of course, uh, moved to Virginia and went to the University of Virginia. Now, you went on... To uh, to high honors, you got a JD from Harvard Law School. Uh, you must be pretty smart. That's what that tells me. And you got a PhD from Harvard as well. Why not just stop at the JD and become a Supreme Court justice? Yeah. So I I graduated from um, uh, from law school and I actually went to clerk uh, mm-hmm. for Francis Murnahan on the Fourth Circuit. 
in uh, Baltimore, the the federal circuit that that also includes Virginia, and so we spent a lot of time down in Richmond. Mm. But um, my last semester of law school, I ended up taking a class with Professor Bernard Balin mm. on the history of the Constitution. Mm. And I only took that class uh, because a good friend told me, well, everyone's taking the class, you should take this class. Yeah. And so I said- And that was in your last in semester in law school? In my last semester in law school, yeah. and uh, Professor Balin sort of quite unusually was teaching and I and I was blown away I couldn't believe I'd gone through three years of law school talking about the Constitution and no one had ever talked about why we had it or how it had been written or anything about that so um, I was gonna go work in Washington DC and my judge and I had had a lot of conversations and and he said you know you're a young kid why not you know spend some time go back to graduate school do something like that you know you can always become a lawyer and uh, and I sort of never got around to getting back specifically um, to practicing, but I teach at Boston College uh, in the law school, and I love teaching law students, and I and I really love teaching law, and I love everything about law. So, well, how much of the history uh, that you've worked on do you get to bring into your law uh, curriculum? Well, I've been You're not required to teach contracts courses endlessly. I yeah, no, I teach property, which I yeah. love. I teach first year property, and I teach mm-hmm. trust and estates, and um, that's actually what led me in a funny way to. Um, James Madison, I had originally thought I'd do a big coffee table book. I was trying to make some money, and I was going to do a coffee table book called Founding Lawyers, which like still that. would be a good job. Yeah, and uh, sure. and so I had to create this list of like which of the founders were lawyers and which weren't. And mm-hmm. I got completely stuck on Madison yeah. because he knew a lot about law, but he wasn't ever technically a member of the bar. And, and the part of... And so I did a little piece on James Madison as a law student. Mm-hmm. And the thing that Madison loved was Madison loved um, trust in estates, and he actually knew a lot about estates. Really? And this fits with his interest in the Constitution because one of the things that trust in estates worries a lot about is what, what do words mean? What did the person mean when they use certain words? And that actually turns out to be what Madison was interested in hmm. in reading about trust in estates. And, um, and so, th- so everything, to my mind, fits together, <laughs> even if it doesn't necessarily seem well, from the outside like it You're a lot like, like Madison there, there yeah. because you show in the book that he's often quite good at making things fit together when, in fact, they probably didn't fit for most people as well as he was seeing them come together. Yeah, well, he yeah. he was very interested in um, uh, in language. Um, he liked he liked law quite a bit. He wasn't interested in the judiciary. I'm actually going to go down uh, mm. and give a talk to the first circuit. I spoke to the second circuit last year, and one of I think their great disappointments is Madison really wasn't that interested in the judiciary yeah. at all. It wasn't the branch that interested him. Yeah, he's 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 a consummate politician. I mean, he's, yeah political animal. Yeah, he's a political animal. He had come out of legislatures. He was interested in legislatures. He loved um, politics. He loved the part of politics that that we often don't appreciate. He loved the drafting, and mm-hmm. he loved the sneaky things you had to do to yeah. get bills through. And he loved the fact that um, people would vote the wrong way on bills in order to get them through, or people would put the wrong language in. And he wrote a very famous letter to his father um, sort of appreciating all the sneaky aspects of getting legislation through. So in that sense, he's really a consummate politician, not in the way that we use the word negatively today, mm-hmm. but in a way of sort of appreciating the art yeah. of politics. Well, it's tr- it's interesting because that, that part of Madison is maybe known to some of us who are political historians of the early republic and know Madison, the le- 
you know, in the House of Representatives. But uh, I think for lawyers and, and, and jurists and, you know, political scientists, the people who write about the Constitution, they probably are a little surprised at Madison, the, you know, the head counting, you know, yeah. manipulative sort of behind the scenes uh, legislator, I guess. Yeah, no, he reminds us in some ways that, uh, that, you know, we now in our current American politics, that job sort of divided into two people. There's mm-hmm. the politician themselves, and then there's his or her chief of staff, yeah. the sort yeah. of chief strategist. Yeah. But of course, th- that didn't exist in those <laughs> days. So people themselves had to be their own chief strategist, yeah. sort of chief of staff. And well, Madison was own, great at that. He's his own blogger, too. Right, right. right. He's, he's his own blogger. He's combining, yeah, the, yeah. Three, the three parts. There. Yeah, and I think for a long time he was... Um, you know, to the degree that you imagine someone like Washington of, as really wanting a stronger government. In a funny way, you can see Madison as um, a strategist in thinking that yeah. um, thinking that through. And certainly, um, in the early, the very early national government uh, in 1788 into 1789, Madison's serving in that role for Washington. Yeah, right. Well, right. He writes the. What, what the inaugural address, right. and, he, and then he writes the response and all that sort Right, of so he writes Washington's <laughs> inaugural, yeah. uh, he writes uh, Washington's inaugural address, and then he um, goes over to Congress and writes Congress's response. And so he's sort of on, I mean, it, it, you know, it reminds us that the government is very small, yeah. that people don't know what the rules are, that all sorts of things that we think of in terms of, well, you can't do that because there's separation of powers. They don't understand separation of powers yet in right. this sort of strict, right. literal way that we come to believe yeah. in it. Yeah, and it, and it also speaks a lot, both his work at the Constitutional Convention, but also at the very beginning of the first Congress of, uh, you know, if you seize the initiative and have a plan, you can get a lot done. Right, right. Yeah. No, and he, I think he very much um, appreciates that. He was a person who was um, respectful and understood the importance of uh, voting coalitions mm-hmm. and caring voting coalitions and yeah. and in, in that sense he really reminds us of, of a of a sort of appreciation for that early type of politicking. Okay so let's take a quick step back and then leap forward into the book itself. So the first book I was familiar with that you wrote was the great study you did on, uh, on colonial uh, legal practice in Rhode Island and particularly the negatives on the Rhode Island legislature that the Privy Council was engaged in the Transatlantic Constitution. Uh, A great book, really a scholar's scholar's book, I think, in many ways, for those of us trying to understand, you know, the Constitution of the British Empire and how it functioned. Uh, So that's, uh, talk about where that came from. I assume it's your dissertation. Yeah, it's, so I wrote a, um, my first book did come out of my dissertation, unfortunately required a lot more work after my dissertation, like many dissertations, and and my first book was on. I was very interested in the, the the law and sort of actual legal practice in terms of how people thought about what we would imagine as constitutional questions. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. there isn't a written constitution, right. and there isn't yeah. a Supreme Court. So how did people operate in that world? And um, yeah, there's sort of an under, underlying art, argument about the origins of judicial right. review, or where does this idea of what other versions of judicial review sort of existed? Right, and so I was yeah. very interested in how did the how did people in the colonies experience the limits mm-hmm. of British law? What we would think of nowadays as the yeah. role that the U.S. Constitution plays. And I and I worked on Rhode Island. Um, Rhode Island was was um, a particular outlier because it um, 
it had so many cases that were taken to England to be appealed to the Privy Council. And so I, I did a lot of that. It's actually, that's important because the first use of the word unconstitutional mm. um, comes in the 1760s in these cases and then becomes very much obviously a part of um, American jurisprudence. And I still am interested in these um, cases that are appealed to the Privy Council. So in my spare time, I work with um, a group of um, collaborators on a giant project to put all of the cases from the American colonies, and now we're doing the Caribbean and Canada, up on a website so that, in so essence, right. this unwritten history of constitutional law um, can be done. So it's a very exciting project. What's the website? Is it it's uh, appeals story? to the Privy Council from the American colonies, <laughs> and we're going to have Canada and the Caribbean. And it's great because yeah. what it eventually will be part of is there are people working um, in Australia on Australian mm. appeals. There's people working on um, appeals from the um, British Empire over India, mm. and then on early um, ones out of Scotland and Ireland. And so eventually what hopefully all these different projects will allow people to do is think about what was it like to be part of the British Empire mm. and how did the British Empire uh, operate. And of course the American colonies were a, were a tiny uh, little bit, but the British Privy Council Judicials Committee, which still exists, um, has a link to our site. And uh, if you go to, they have a museum about the um, Privy Council Judicial Committee, and there's a tiny little part about the American colonies. Um, <laughs> That's remarkable. That's fantastic. Yeah. It sounds like a great resource eventually. Well, probably is already. Yeah, yeah. Encourage but I don't, everyone I don't to go very, look at it. Yeah, very different part of, my, yeah. part of my research. Okay, but you've become famous, of course, for Madison's Hand. Right. Bancroft Prize winner. That's pretty impressive stuff. Uh, what, well, how did you hear that you won the prize? Um, well, the Bancroft is given by uh, Columbia University, and the Columbia University Library is tr always been traditionally uh, the entity that is in charge of it. And so the Columbia University librarian called. And I thought, because of this other project I work on, <laughs> that we had probably failed to return some books or <laughs> owed them money or something like that. So it took me, I, I, he explained that I had won the Bancroft, but I didn't actually hear what he was saying because I was still trying to figure out how I was yeah. going to apologize. Mind, thinking, where is that book? Right, I, I was going to apologize <laughs> for us obviously owing them money or something. Yeah. And so then I... Uh, he was lovely, and, and I said, you have to repeat everything you said all over again, mm. because I really thought That's you were funny. calling for a different project. But it's a, it's a wonderful honor, and I am uh, very humbled for the book to be included in the people who've won it before. Well, it, it, it's a great book, because I think it, it does one thing that a lot of great books do, is it's sort of... Um, uh, it tells a story that you realize uh, is a really important story that nobody's ever told before, which, you know, that's a, a great success, I think, is you, you're getting in here and you're like, oh, yeah, that would have been a great thing for me to work on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sort of like, this is really cool. And, I, and, and it's gripping. And, the, and for any of us who've worked, you know, with Madison's notes of the, of the convention or worked in the politics of the, of the founding period, you just can't put it down when you, when you pick it up, I think, is, 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 the, you know, is the best thing I can say about it. But so how did you realize, oh my goodness, there's this incredible story that nobody has written? Yeah, well, I, I think I didn't I didn't expect to write this book. I, mm. I decided I would write the a... coffee table book. Right, right. I was, I was still on this other project, and I yeah. I had decided George what I would Wythe do. George was the right. first chapter. Right, no, I was. that was like, what the book, this, is, this has turned out better than I expected. Um, but I had thought I would write um, a story about Madison's 
experience at the convention that summer. Mm-hmm. And I would mm-hmm. tell the story of the notes almost as a literary text. Right. I, I was an English undergraduate major, and I thought no one had really, people have used the notes to tell the story of the convention, but I thought I would use it to tell the story of Madison inside his mind. Mm-hmm. And, and in some way, that's still what the book is about. Yeah. What I didn't expect when I started that was that the notes would turn out to be unreliable. And so in, in, at the very beginning of the project, I thought, well, I have to find a copy of the notes that are closest to the summer of 1787 as I can get. And, and I took the standard edition, this edition done by Max Ferrand mm-hmm. uh, in 1911, and I started realizing, like, okay, well, that's not going to work because he even says they were revised and there's these strange footnotes and he says he only put some of them in. So um, I kept I kept sort of tracking backwards, and in doing that, began to realize that there were um, significant questions about the manuscript. So, um, but it but it, but I didn't expect the manuscript to be as unreliable yeah. as it turned out to be. Well, that's what's interesting is that we know there were revisions. People have mentioned revisions. They're mentioned right from the start, the first editions in the nineteenth century, but. But nobody's really ever talked about them <laughs> in any way. Why is that? Why do why do we, or why hadn't scholars sort of made much of these revisions? Right. I mean, I think it's a very fascinating question. It's a question that if, um, if you were a medievalist in England or you did uh, yeah. Roman work, of course you worry about your texts. Right. Yeah. And the Bible, that's just I mean, you know, all these right. Texts right. Things. So you just always worry about them. What I think is interesting is that American. Um, historians of the framing period, um, in part because um, of the greatness of a lot of these edited collections, yeah. have tended to um, to just sort of assume that the texts were the way they were. Which isn't to say that everybody didn't realize there are revisions, it's just right. that we don't have a historical culture that has known what to do with them. In part that's because we're a little bit of a young country still. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I so so we haven't worried about that as much. And this is true of all of the early framing texts. If you go back and look at them, um, most of the letters were self-curated. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jefferson collected his letters before he died, and uh, he made decisions about them. Madison collected right. yeah. his. Mm-hmm. And, and yet we have tended as historians, I think, to be a little bit... Um, um, too quick to assume that the letter that was left at the death was the letter that existed at the time. Yeah. And and I think this is a thing that historians really should go back and think about. I, I think one of the things the book tries to suggest is that even small word changes matter. Mm. And in fact, they tell us something very important that somebody yeah. was willing years later to go back and um, shift a word well, there, was there, important. There is, I think, there's there is a, something off-putting about reading this after you've used the notes, you've used them in class or whatever, and you realize, oh my goodness, these are such a manufactured product. Not only after the day, I mean, during the actual convention, you know, they're being the what, and yet there's so many jurists, you know, you know, obviously there's the original intent, folks, but then there's also, you know, even historians who criticize original intent or historians who work, they, you know, they they use the notes as if they're yeah, as if they're you know made that day of the of the event, and um, and, and so there is a there is an unsettling quality I think to your book for some of us. It's <laughs> like oh my goodness, what don't we know about this story? Right. I mean, I think one thing the book the book tries to argue that the notes were revised by Madison, and that those revisions matter. It mm-hmm. it 
the, the notes aren't completely revised. So, right. so the book suggests that um, the convention happened from May to September of 1787. Mm-hmm. And the book, the book tries to talk about how partly we misunderstand what the notes are. So mm-hmm. the book begins by explaining that Madison's notes belong to a genre that I call legislative diary. It's a genre we don't even have a name for, mm-hmm. but legislators um, kept private diaries. And the British have done a lot of work on this. They have the word, they call this its own genre. They call it a parliamentary diary. So I borrow that term uh, and call these legislative diaries. And that's important because on the American side, there are no third person objective um, accounts of what's going on in Congress. Yeah. And in part, that's because on the American side uh, and the British side at this time, parliamentary legislative proceedings are closed. So, so people don't yet have the expectation that the public has a right to listen to everything going on. Mm-hmm. And, and that was very important for me in telling the story of the convention because the convention was secret. That's a word that people use. But it wasn't secret where everything else was open. The idea that legislative proceedings should be open to the public was just beginning to really become a norm. And so one of the things the book talks about at the beginning is when Congress began after the Constitution uh, in 1789, um, the House of Representatives opens up to be public. But the Senate remains closed. And uh, only in the 1790s does the Senate finally agree that the public should be able to walk in and listen to them deliberating. So the so one thing I think that I tried to do in the book is resituate the convention in this transitional moment yeah. from closed legislative proceedings where people had to rely on private diaries towards the kind of public democratic mm-hmm. norms that we really take for granted today. The other thing I think you nicely point out about uh, the, the, the purpose of Madison's note-taking at the convention is that uh, the convention is sort of doubly secret, so it's not only supposed to be closed so that people can't come in and listen, but also all the participants are not supposed to correspond about what's going on, which was something that happened at Congress, right. even though it was closed to outside observers. And so all of a sudden, Madison's notes are going to become, for him, something to help him explain at the end of the convention what had happened. As well as you very nicely show, you know, he's got this relationship with Jefferson. He, it's pretty clear that he assumes that at least Jefferson's going to see this stuff at some point. Right. He had, when Madison had been in Congress prior to the convention uh, in the early 1780s, um, he had been in Congress and he had taken some uh, uh, notes. And when Jefferson came down to understand, Jefferson actually read his Madison's congressional notes. And he mm-hmm. says, you know, your notes are really important. They'll catch me up to speed. Mm-hmm. So I argue in the book, and not this is a point on which um, some people don't read it the way I do, but I believe yeah. that the notes were taken from Madison for himself, but also with the understanding that Jefferson would read them. Because Jefferson had read his notes before. Jefferson is in Paris during this period. And the book argues that Madison takes the notes uh, up through um, August, part of August, and then Madison gets sick and Madison is put on a lot of uh, committees, Madison gets very busy, and Madison actually stops taking notes. Mm-hmm. In, in, or to put it differently, he stops writing up his rough notes mm-hmm. into this beautiful copy. And, and so I argue there's this unconformity, that is, mm-hmm. we're missing the contemporaneous account of the end of the convention. Mm-hmm. And only when Madison learns that Jefferson's coming back finally from Paris in 1789 does he rush around 
and try and complete mm -hmm. them. Yeah. So Madison's notes are, have come down in importance to us as historians because it looks like they were the only full account of the convention mm -hmm. from May to September. Yeah. The book tries to argue they're actually not. They were a roughly contemporaneous account up through August, mm -hmm. but then they fell apart, and then Madison basically finished them two years later. Yeah. And so the <laughs> end is highly unreliable. Yeah. You know, it's a fascinating account. Well, let's talk about that time in Philadelphia then, and then we can talk about the revisions later. Yeah. Um, some of the things that strike me uh, early on is that Madison is putting the Virginians sort of in the driver's seat at the beginning of the convention. So they are the ones sort of shaping everything. And through your reading, I get a really strong sense of, of Madison the nationalist. I mean, somebody who really wanted to get to really have a proportional representative national legislature an executive a judiciary you know a, a veto or a, a negative on the state laws right i mean i think uh, one of the things that the book really does is certainly i agree with a lot of people who've written um since the early 19th century uh talking about the virginians and madison as nationalists yeah. as people who wanted a strong national government um, as people who wanted a national government that in some ways is stronger than we would have, than anybody could imagine today. So one thing Madison yeah. wants that Washington wants is they want the um, National Congress to be able to negative, that was the word, yeah. to veto yeah. state legislation. Yeah. And they thought that was a great idea. That, like the Privy Council. Right, right? like Which the Privy Council. astonishing because everybody hated that so much, particularly Virginians. Right, right? but Madison doesn't. It's, it's actually <laughs> yeah. one of the most important things. It's one of the ways in which I think we have failed to appreciate how strong and in some ways centralized the Virginians' plan was. Yeah. Yeah. Madison wants this so badly that, that at the end of the convention in September, he writes a letter to Jefferson. And when he complains about what was a big failure at the convention, yeah. the lack of a negative is what Madison yeah. thinks is a big failure. Madison wants a much more centralized, strong government well, uh, than that, we end up with. Well, I think that letter he writes to Jefferson, or maybe it's one right around then in the fall, in which he lays out basically the argument of Federalist 10, that you know, you extend the sphere and you can control factions, but that this won't be possible if you don't have a negative on the state legislatures. I mean, he really connects it fundamentally to, to you know, what we think of now as the sort of Madisonian vision, um, but they didn't get it. So, you know, at some level, right. you know, what does right. that mean? Right. No, I mean, yeah. I argue in the book yeah. a little bit that, that he wants, he, he thinks that the states are the big problem. Yeah. He wants to control the states. He, um, through, the, through his notes, I, as I read his notes, most of his notes are obsessed with controlling the states. Yeah. And, and he loses that. Um, and that's what's so interesting. He yeah. wants proportional representation uh, both in the House and the Senate. Yeah. And he does not want the states represented equally in the Senate. He thought that was the whole great failure of the Articles of Confederation period. And he's willing, as I read the notes, he's, his entire strategy is designed to try and hold voting coalitions, to try and make sure that the states never get equally yeah. represented in the Senate, and, and he loses that. Yeah. The Federalist compromise that we think is the greatest thing about the convention, that the states are represented equally in Senate and the, that we have proportional representation in the House, is the thing that Madison thinks is the worst yeah. result. He eventually becomes reconciled to it, right. 
um, Jefferson's reconciled to it, but but not in July of 1787. Yeah. And so the book really tries to get us back in that space where, where they don't know that the Constitution's going to be successful. Yeah. I think, I mean, you really succeed there, I think, in... in, in that's why it's gripping. That's why you can't put it down. It's because you, you put the put us back in the contemporary moment in which, even though we know the end of the story, we are you know living through their their uh, blood, sweat, and tears, as it were. You divide the convention into three components. The first part, you know, up to the middle of June, when the when the big committee report on you know on, on all the things that he wanted are, is sort of there. Then there's the midsection where he's really going strong on his notes and and re- he has his method. Place, but that's where he loses all these strategic or tactical fights over, uh, you know, and that's where the great compromises come in. And then there's the third part where he, his notes disappear. Um, talk a little bit about that middle section there where he's really got his groove on, but he's losing everything. Yeah. Um, he's called the father of the Constitution, but he, he doesn't get at all the design he wanted. No, and I think that, you know, again, this is the thing that I thought was so important to get back to was appreciating how dramatic the convention must have been for yeah, them. Yeah. Um, it's a political drama. It's a political yeah, drama, and, there, and, that, and that people lost. You know, we, we don't think that because we tell the story of the convention wherever we, we ignore the things that don't turn out to work. And so we tell a story of the convention, understandably, where it's all successes. But, but it was super upsetting to him. And the two pieces that I talk a lot about in the book um, one is his desperate desire to try and have this coalition uh, that's going to get proportional representation. And I argue in the book that that as he begins to lose that, he realizes that in order to get the six votes he needs, if he combines the three largest states, Virginia, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania, with the three states that would also like to protect slavery, the two Carolinas and Georgia, he could get a six-vote coalition that would get proportional representation in both houses. And so in my telling of the story, Madison is the person who first at the convention starts to suggest to the southern slavery states they need to protect slavery, and if every state gets a vote, they're going to be trouble. And so I, I see Madison as a as an instigator in this. Um, uh, Governor Morris sees that. Um, Madison records in great detail Governor Morris's um, speech, great speech against slavery back at him. And Morris basically says, I thought it was heretical to say that there was a division over slavery. But if there is going to be a division over slavery, then maybe we need to kind of call it a day. And Madison writes this down, I think, in some ways, as a way of saying, like, look, see, I really did create this thing. Madison loses that. And yeah. and in some ways, the untold story is is why the Massachusetts delegation ultimately doesn't vote in the right way. We don't really understand why that coalition falls apart. Mm-hmm. So that's one story. And then the second story that I think is very interesting, one that we don't reflect on but worried Madison enormously, was in this moment where Madison's lost everything in July, on, on July 17th, the Virginians... Um, vote for an executive with lifetime tenure. That is a president who would have no term limits. Mm -hmm. And um, that looks like a monarchy, Mm -hmm. um, an elected monarch. And and the Virginians vote for it. And this is a page in the notes that Madison, I argue Madison replaces, and he then tries 
to repeatedly explain why they voted for this. We know there is no elected monarchy. We know there's term limits. We live in a world where the president can only serve two terms. So it's been something that historians just ignore. It doesn't fit our understanding of the United States. But it was um, the Achilles heel for Madison. He left the convention. People, lots of people said there had been efforts to create a monarch. Mm. Um, there was a lot of worry about that. And so this also reminds us how how we're very distant from the things that he was worried about. Yeah, yeah his universe of concerns is very different from what, from what we think about when, when we look at the, at the Constitutional Convention. Now, I think you, 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 you frame all that very nicely, and, and you chose Madison in, in, as this political player in a desperate moment. Um, but yet he stays. He isn't he one stays. of the delegates who leaves. Many of them say, well, forget about it. If I can't get what I want, then I'm out of here, you know, or for whatever reasons they go. He sticks around. Why does Madison stick around? Right. This was one of the things where um, where I was so fascinated. He, he loses. He's lost everything. Um, Morris is another person who's lost everything, uh, lost a lot of what he cares about, and they both stay. You know, they're not like Hamilton, who is floating back and forth and everything like that. They, they both show up at the end. And I, I think for Madison, part of what saves him is this weirdly, this note-taking. He is not on the first draft committee. He um, is, um, uh, he's, he's aligned with all the wrong interests, so they don't put him on the first draft committee. But he does copy the first draft over by hand. And yeah. I argue that in copying the first draft, he actually sees the Constitution as a draft mm. in a way that other people haven't. The committee um, worked on it, so they understand it in one way. Everybody else just sort of is reading it. But Madison actually has a sense of what that first draft looks like. And so what I argue in August happens to him is he becomes a useful political figure because as people get stuck in the debate, he's often able to say a later provision takes care of this. Mm-hmm. That is, he's often able to help them move on. He knows it so well. He knows he it so of, well. Yeah. yeah, so it was a nice thing for me because it was where the notes themselves yeah. sort of become redemptive. And we can see Madison being redeemed at the convention because uh, in August, in late August, he's put on the three biggest committees. Yeah. So, so for me, the notes show the story of he's successful. He comes in May, June. He has this great ambition. He loses in July. Yeah. Everything's a disaster. And then, through note taking, he's kind of redeemed. Yeah. And and actually, then be, will be able to be go down as the father of the Constitution yeah. because he gets on that last drafting committee. You well, only you have to be on that. You have to be on the last <laughs> drafting the last committee. committee. Well, he's you know he, he comes off very interesting in your in your portrayal because he's a you know he he gives these uh, speeches that often other people recording them say they're incoherent rambling right. speeches and then what's given down to us are these nice you know the vices of the political system these nice you know systematic analytical essays and and uh, you know the um, the moment early on where he's advocating for a council of censors of some sort that he clearly intellectually is in love with this idea and you know you know a lot of people are probably rolling their eyes you know this is like what Pennsylvania tried it's garbage it doesn't work um, but that but but he kind of elides that whole story from his notes as well so he you know he has a lot of funny quirky failures in here I think one of the revisions you make in the way we think about Madison or at least you it, it's a really nice Way to understand Madison that you draw out is that the notes and the note taking 
really is an exercise to help him work through his political thinking, whereas we tend to think of Madison studied all these constitutions, he shows up at the convention and he knows he's got, you know, he knows what he's doing, and then at the end, you know, he's going to write the Federalist Papers to help, you know, justify the constitution they got. But you're really showing a person who is coming to grips with their understanding of this universe. I mean, I think that this is where, you know, some people get upset about the book. Um, Mm -hmm. I think particularly political theorists who want Madison to be someone like Aristotle, who, I mean, this wasn't even true of Aristotle, but who they want... (laughs) They want the person to have come with the great ideas and influence everybody. And I think I have a different notion of greatness. I think for me, greatness comes from someone who's able to take ideas, work them through, listen to other people, draw on other people, continue to revise things, and keep working at it. Mm. So, Mm. So I just have, I tell a different story of greatness. I think a greatness that comes out of the ability to revise mm. and continue to work on ideas as, as opposed to someone who showed up with all the ideas yeah. in the beginning. Um, but well, this is more but convincing a from my point of view, particularly yeah. given his, his, his political instincts. I mean, this is sort of what he's doing as a politician and as a thinker. He's not just, I mean, it's very hard for people who are just academically inclined to change their mind like the way that he's got that flexibility, it seems to be, which is part about what is the argument I can make that's convincing to get what I want to get, but it's also about, well, what is another way to look at this problem? And and, uh, he seems to be learning throughout. Right. I mean, I think one of the things that it's only touched on a little bit in the book, but as I read the Federalist Papers, one of the things that I found so fascinating about him was Madison knows that he's writing things that are different than the convention. But it's almost as if Alexander (laughs) Hamilton kept saying to him, like, who cares what people said? We need to win. And if we don't win, it's irrelevant. So we need to come up with arguments that are going to persuade people. And Why do you think that's Hamilton that's telling him that? Well, the Federalists... Don't you think they sort of agree on that? Yeah. I mean, I I give Hamilton a lot of credit for the Federalist because the Federalist was Hamilton's plan. Mm -hmm. And Madison is a latecomer. He's not the person that Hamilton wants to be writing with him. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) They they write these great papers. Hamilton writes most of them. Uh, Madison is given the ones that he likes, which is Mm -hmm. Congress. Uh, and, And one of the things the book does is it tries to take and reposition which of the Federalist Papers is the greatest. So Mm. the standard answer to that question in in the 20th century was Federalist 10. Mm. Um, I sort of suggest that Federalist 10, Madison probably thought of was a kind of failure. Mm. I I think he wants a structural solution to the problem of interests, and he doesn't have one. And so I argue Federalist 37 is his greatest Mm -hmm. contribution, Mm -hmm. where he argues that the um, Constitution wasn't written in a closet, it wasn't pure theory. Um, it has contradictions. Right. Uh, it was an effort to solve real problems. Yeah. And, and I think that that understanding of the Constitution is what tells us why the Constitution has survived for 225 years. Yeah. Well, I, I think you're right. And I think that uh, Federalist 10 always sat ill with me as, a, as the best essay, given that he completely undermines it with his activities in 1792 when he creates a majority faction to try to win in the legislature when he creates a party. Right, you know? right. I mean, Federalist then, 10 is know, a hot so, right. so like, yeah. No, you're, yeah. you're exactly you, right you on know, that. So, okay. But, um, wh- but whereas yeah. if you think of Federalist 37 as his greatest yeah. essay, then he's, a, he's remarkably consistent over yeah. his lifetime. Yeah. All sorts of things he does as president, all sorts of things that he does um, after his presidency and trying to reconcile what he had said about 
about some things about the states yeah. with the growing pro-slavery factions. He's actually consistent over his lifetime mm. with Federalist 37. He's just not consistent necessarily with, with Federalist 10. Yeah, okay, so let's talk about, we didn't cover all the great things and in, in the reveals in the, in the period in, in, at the Constitutional Convention, um, but you all can go buy the book and read about that. Yeah. So let's get into some of the, revi the revisions. The revisions, uh, yeah. Clearly, you, know, you already mentioned it, the period in which he's preparing the text for Jefferson. Uh, what's the the major takeaway? You said it's unreliable. The uh, the end of the convention. What does that mean? Yeah. So the part that of the convention notes that interest most people today are the parts um, from late August to September because that's where all the things that happen that we care about. I yeah. mean, we we don't the really details, yeah. the details, all the things that mess up our lives. <laughs> and uh, and I argue this was all yeah. done in 1789. And it's fun to be here at Mount Vernon because George Washington plays this role that is a mystery. So at the end of the convention, uh, Washington is given the official journal. And, and, and he's supposed to eventually deposit it, but, but the instructions are not entirely clear. The only instructions we know actually are from Madison's notes in this after-the-fact written part. And, and we know because the, the copy exists at Yale, um, uh, that Madison made a basically secret copy of the journal, which means Washington gave it to him. And unfortunately, the two months of Washington diaries that are missing are the two months in which he would have given. You need to go find those. Yeah, I know. If we could only find them. Uh, then, then I think we'd know because Washington was a great yeah. record yeah. keeper. Right. Um, right. So somehow Madison uh, probably voluntarily, uh, unless he snuck in and and borrowed them illicitly, uh, makes a secret copy of the journal. And I argue then he uses this official copy to try and make sense of his rough notes. Mm -hmm. But he, but this is the fall of 1789 and the world has shifted. Yeah. So he's in Congress already. He's worked on the amendments that are gonna become the Bill of Rights. Mm -hmm. They've already had interpretive problems with what does the Constitution mean? And so now when he goes back to try and figure out what the notes say at the end of the convention, he sees the convention differently. It, yeah. it, it has a different role. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's two years ago. It's after the whole ratification yeah, fight. Yeah, and yeah. one of the great moments in... Well, and after he's thought about the Constitution, you know, and written about it in endless ways that in, in you know, August of 1787, right. he, he would never have written Right, it. and I try and make the point in the book that one really important thing happens that we don't even think of because we take it for granted. Uh, in the in the summer of 1789, Madison went to Congress, to the House of Representatives, and said he would fulfill a campaign promise he made. And, and it's one of the most important campaign promises probably anybody made. He said that he would try and get amendments, right. including rights added to the Constitution. And, and he says that in order to get elected in Virginia, and then he carries it out. And he, he drives everybody crazy yeah. pushing this through. But he wanted those amendments to be interwoven with the Constitution. Right, yeah, let's slip this one here in Article 1, let's right. rewrite Article 2. And, and if you think yeah. about what that would have done, that would have meant that the Constitution as it existed in 1787 was irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And the Convention in some ways was irrelevant because we would have amended the Constitution by redrafting it yeah. all the time, by yeah. revising it. Yeah. But Roger Sherman stands up and says, that's a terrible idea. Uh, he says, I think it'll be confusing. <clears throat> Who knows whether it would have been more or less confusing. But he says, the Constitution is sacred, and we should add the amendments to the end, which is, of course, what we're used to. And Madison thinks that's a terrible idea, but Madison loses. And so 
After that decision, in the fall of 1789, when Madison goes back to now finish the convention notes out, he knows that the 1787 constitutional text will remain intact. Right. So it has a relevance mm. now that no one could have even known, even given the Constitution that it had. Yeah. And so it's really at that moment that the convention, two years after the convention, that the convention suddenly becomes almost like a political card yeah. that you're going to be able to play in American yeah. politics. Yeah, right. You see it you, all over the 1790s, the, if the framers had intended right. this, if the framers had intended this, I was at the convention, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Right. And so then when when Jefferson comes back, I, I argue Jefferson reads at least some of the notes. Yeah. He gets um, his notion of Hamilton mm -hmm. as a crazy monarchist <laughs> from this, that the notes in this interesting way <coughs> then play into this great divide in American politics between um, yeah. Jefferson, now joined by Madison, and Washington. And yeah, because he reads the notes after the dinner table bargain. Right. I mean, he reads them, and then all of a sudden, uh, Hamilton's bank bill appears. Right, right. So they're like, uh-oh. Right. So there's a lot, you know, there's a lot that there was no evidence for, so I'm very careful to yeah. say, I don't know what happened, I don't yeah. know. But, yeah. but there is this remarkable shift of Madison swinging from the Washington-Hamilton side. He swings over to Jefferson. Jefferson is sees the world as monarchists versus Republican, very much through the lens of the French yeah. Revolution, and uh, and you know all of American history, the modern musical Hamilton, right, is because of that divide. Yeah. So nobody, I mean, so Jefferson knows about the notes. Others know that Madison has these notes, but he's not going to publish them in his life. He flirts with publication in the. Um, mid to late 1790s, Jefferson wants him to publish them. Mm -hmm. And he wants to publish them because he thinks that uh, that they will make the Adams administration look bad. And Madison writes um, a letter to him saying, you know, we ought to think about this. And he writes a very funny <laughs> phrase in there, you know, you should you, you would want to look at every sheet, mm -hmm. suggesting that Jefferson had never read them all the way through. Yeah, yeah. But Madison's also worried about what other accounts will be made out, because he wasn't the only note taker. Right. And uh, I think he worries that, particularly with respect to what he said, other people will say things. You know, none of this is a problem for Jefferson, because Jefferson yeah, wasn't there. He, wasn't there. <laughs> he doesn't have a reputation at stake, but <laughs> Madison does. And Madison um, won't publish them in the 1790s. And then he flirts with publishing them, uh, but then eventually decides that they'll be published posthumously after his death. But he continues to revise them throughout his life? Yeah, he continues to revise them, um, never uh, quite so much as he does mm. in the 1790s. Mm -hmm. But one interesting set of revisions he makes is he had very much criticized um, a set of notes that were published uh, under the title A Secret Hi The Secret History mm -hmm. uh, by Yates, who was a New York delegate who very much disagreed with Madison. And Mad Madison criticized these as being false and you know, terrible and everything like that. Uh, but he goes through his own notes and he um, takes portions of the Yates notes and he flips like the beginning and ends of sentences and substitutes in some synonyms and he inserts those silently into his own notes, including at least in one instance, a little speech he gave that he forgot he had given. <laughs> and so he he does continue to make some revisions what, So on. what's the, so he secretly kind of slides some of notes, uh, Yates's observation into his notes. What What's the impact? Well, what I'm trying to suggest in the book is that Madison was never trying to be sneaky. He right. was He's always trying, to, trying to show his understanding of the convention. But, but over time, his, his understanding of the convention changed. changed. Yeah. 
And so I think he reads the Yeats notes and realizes that there were things in them that that should have been in his notes mm. that you know were obviously accurate about his notes. And so he he moves them in. And it's also that the genre has changed. So you know he no longer wants his notes to be a private diary. He now wants his notes to look like they were taken by almost a third person. Right. objective observer rather than a guy who was completely engaged yeah. in the thing. Well, one of the things that strikes me is you right from the start you showed that Madison sort of moderated everybody in the notes. He took out sort of the passionate, the harder, angry edges to the people. Um, and so the notes from the from the start have that sort of analytical quality of, of making everything look a little more under control, a little more logical, a little less passionate. Uh, and this is just something that continues over time. Right. So one of the things that I found fascinating in trying to sort of look at all the little words that got removed was was Madison, almost like he was scared of emotion. He, he makes himself much more moderate than other people uh, had, had recorded him. He makes the convention. Um, very moderate, and then he continues to moderate that uh, mm -hmm. over yeah. over right. time. And partly, this is a product of when he took rough notes, and twice mm -hmm. a week he wrote them up. He wrote up his notes every day, twice a week. What we have as the notes by creating a very strong lead sentence. Mm -hmm. So he wrote a summary sentence at the beginning of every time somebody speaks, and nobody speaks like this. Um, but but it does create this yeah it creates this very coherent yeah. way and when I wrote the book I had spent so much time reading Madison's notes with these strong summary sentences that I decided it was a good way to write the book so just like you can read the notes of the convention by reading only the first sentence of every paragraph you can read my whole book by just reading the whole first sentence of every paragraph and that's a good a good practice certainly so the book has been really well received what what are uh, what are some of the things that you you're hearing about? What what do people like about it? What do they dislike about it? Um, I think uh, the Society for Historians of the Early American Republic were very kind, and they gave it um, the best biography prize. Uh, they liked. I think there's. I think there are people who are very interested in the notion in which a manuscript or a famous text yeah. can be thought of as a. We can write an account of that text, yeah. a biography of that text, and a biography of the person. And so, as a type of work, I think I think people like it. Um, I think people have liked Madison being restored a little bit to a, a more human person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think political historians have really enjoyed mm. the convention. Um, being turned back into the kind of political place that it was. And I think some people are very sad that the um, noble, august Madison who came with the great ideas uh, doesn't really make an appearance in my book. Well, but it, it, yeah, he doesn't make any sense, though, you know, related to the rest of the Madison we see, I mean, as the politician. So it's, it's a really nice revision, I think, to what had become a pretty stale version. Uh, and congratulations on it. We look forward to the uh, talk tonight and uh, look forward to future work as well. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thanks for being here. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.